And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Finally, finally, it is time again for another Tradcast episode. Number 12 it is. And we are very happy you're listening. John Salza and Robert Sisko, on the other hand, are not going to be so happy that you're listening. So if you needed another reason to listen, this is it. Well, after almost three full years of Pope Francis, the chaos in the Novus Ordo Church is worse than it has ever been, and people really are at their breaking point over the guy. The hostility towards the man that the semi-traditionalists claim is the Vicar of Christ is reaching a record high. Now, no longer with mere calls for him to step down— but even now outright calls for him to be removed, that is, deposed. For example, Michael Matt, editor of The Remnant, said the following in a recent episode of his Remnant Forum video program with Chris Ferreira. Quote, The situation in Rome is so out of control now that serious Catholics around the world are regularly discussing exactly how, when, and why to depose a pope, unquote. Now, let me play the actual audio clip for you where he says that. It's from The Remnant Forum, the episode dated February 2nd, entitled Luther's Revenge, the Surrender of Pope Francis, at roughly 48 seconds into the clip, so right at the beginning. Here's Michael Matt. Listen carefully. The situation in Rome is so out of control now that serious Catholics around the world are regularly discussing exactly how, when, and why to depose a pope. Is that right, Mr. Matt? Well, if that's what serious Catholics are discussing these days, then it's a pretty short conversation, because in the Catholic religion, deposing a pope is an impossibility. Nobody on earth can depose or take the pontificate away from a validly reigning pope. Only the pope himself can give up the pontificate by resigning either expressly or tacitly, that is, either by announcing that he is stepping down, or by taking an action that is the moral equivalent of giving up the papacy, such as if he were to become a public heretic, since public heresy is intrinsically incompatible with being the head of the church because it is intrinsically incompatible with being a member of the church, because the church is one in faith 
And if a heretic could be a member of the church, then the church would be divided in faith and not be one. Now, a particularly scary example of confused thought about Catholicism, the church, and the papacy was posted on the blog The Stumbling Block, where on February 19th of this year, the anonymous author published the following in a post entitled Replace Francis. Quote, the entire world and its machine honor him as Pope, and perhaps he is, but it really doesn't matter because he's not Catholic. He's not part of the church militant. Many may read this and say it's said of a cantism, but it's not. I'm not claiming to know Francis's actual status. I'm simply saying that spiritually, what difference does it make to God when you're in the hell line anyway? If you're standing in the hell line, does Christ consider you part of his church? No, he doesn't. Unquote. Actually, he does. And that is dogma. Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 28. And I quote, If anyone says that he who has faith without charity is not a Christian, let him be anathema. Likewise, Pope Pius XII, Encyclical Mystici Corporis in 1943, it's paragraph 23, quote, Nor must one imagine that the body of the church, just because it bears the name of Christ, is made up during the days of its earthly pilgrimage only of members conspicuous for their holiness, or that it consists only of those whom God has predestined to eternal happiness. It is owing to the Savior's infinite mercy that place is allowed in his mystical body here below for those whom, of old, he did not exclude from the banquet. For not every sin, however grave it may be, is such as of its own nature to sever a man from the body of the church as does schism or heresy or apostasy. Men may lose charity and divine grace through sin, thus becoming incapable of supernatural merit, and yet not be deprived of all life if they hold fast to faith and Christian hope. And if illumined from above, they are spurred on by the interior promptings of the Holy Spirit to salutary fear and are moved to prayer and penance for their sins. Unquote. So, Wow. What this blog post says, the uh, stumbling block there, the post entitled Replace Francis, is really messed up theologically. And, I, and I'm not trying to make fun of the author or, or, or anything. I, look, he's, pro he's obviously a good soul trying as best as he can to make sense of this whole mess. But these are some serious issues. These are some very serious errors he's uh, published there. And in fact, it's heresy. It's heresy to say that only those in the state of grace are members of the church. And then this idea that it doesn't matter if Francis is the pope or not. I mean, this is just absurd. If there's one person in the entire church who is important, it's the pope. I mean, if he's not important, no one else is either.
Back in October of 2014, The Remnant published a blog post also arguing that it just doesn't matter if Francis is Pope or not, because either way, we can't follow him. Well, back then, we published a lengthy rebuttal to that totally uninformed and confused post, and we're just going to link that on uh, tradcast.org in our show notes for this episode, episode 12. And that's also where you find the links to anything else we discuss and uh, reference here. The rebuttal that we wrote is entitled, Is Francis a Valid Pope? Why It Does Matter. And you can find... In that uh, post, a lot of different quotes from church authorities, from the popes, from the magisterium, about the nature and importance of the papacy. So there's no need to get into all of this here now because uh, you can just find it there. Uh, But the one thing I want to emphasize is that this stubborn resistance on the part of the semi-traditionalists People like Michael Matt, Chris Ferreira, John Venary, Robert Sisko, John Salza, etc., that their stubborn refusal to embrace that of Akantism or at least consider it a possibility has made them twist and discard so much Catholic teaching about the papacy and the church. These people are doing very serious damage to their readers' knowledge and understanding of Catholic teaching. They're really affecting souls and not in a good way. Look, if you're able to discern that Francis is not a Catholic, if that much is clear, then it's absolutely clear also that he isn't Pope. Because by saying he's not a Catholic, you're already saying he's not Pope. That has nothing to do with judging the Pope. It has to do with judging whether a particular individual who claims to be Pope can actually be one. And if that weren't permissible... Well, then anyone's mere claim to the papacy would have to be accepted as valid, right? Because you're always judging the Pope if you reject that claim. Besides, if this judging the Pope argument were applicable here, then it would also have to apply to judging whether Francis is even a Catholic. How is it that the blogger in question is comfortable recognizing Francis isn't a Catholic, yet isn't comfortable saying he's not Pope? If he's not Catholic, he's not Pope. Since when is there such a thing as a non-Catholic Pope? Read the many magisterial pronouncements in the various papal and conciliar documents about the papacy. Read them. You will see that the idea of a non-Catholic Pope doesn't fit into them. And for those who don't like to read or need a little bit of encouragement, we've put together a short video entitled True or False Pope, Have the Gates of Hell Prevailed? And we're linking uh, that also on our show page. That video quotes a number of magisterial documents from the 19th and 20th centuries. And you will see that these teachings and the idea that Jorge Bergoglio is a valid occupant of the papal office do not go together. Here, let, let me quote just one such beautiful teaching from the First Vatican Council. Quote, 
So this gift of truth and a never-failing faith was divinely conferred upon Peter and his successors in this chair, that they might administer their high duty for the salvation of all, that the entire flock of Christ, turned away by them from the poisonous food of error, might be nourished on the sustenance of heavenly doctrine, that with the occasion of schism removed, the whole church might be saved as one, and relying on her foundation, might stay firm against the gates of hell. Unquote. Vatican I. Dogmatic Constitution Pastor Eternus. Denzinger, number 1837. Yeah, it's... Not looking too good for Francis, is it? All right, let's move on and talk about the new book that just came out against Sedevacantism, True or False Pope, Refuting Sedevacantism and Other Modern Errors, written by John Salza and Robert Sisko. It was published in early January and at 710 pages, it's going to take a while to go through it all. The authors, of course, are taking advantage of that gap, the time it takes to read and research the issues brought up in their book, and are currently firing off article after article on their website, trueorfalsepope.com, and they're doing it in such quick succession that one gets the impression that they mean to overwhelm us, perhaps make us panic. Now, since, of course, like most people, we don't have the time to read and immediately refute article after article, week after week, since we actually like to think before we speak, they are already confidently declaring victory and uh, making fun of their opponents in a way that is fairly hard to describe. I'm still looking for the right words, actually. You should probably just go uh, visit sometime and look at the circus they're making over there. It's, it's uh, quite disgraceful. Trueorfalsepope.com. Click on the menu option that says Sedevacantist Watch. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Yeah, anyway, I'd say uh, what they're doing is a mixture of grandstanding, bullying, gloating, and just juvenile taunting with gratuitous personal attacks like you haven't seen before, including just stupid, stupid stuff. For example, let me quote from one of their articles against Father Chicada. Listen to this. This is Salza and Cisco writing on their website. Quote, Clearly, our book True or False Pope and recent feature articles are keeping Father Chicada awake at nights. Blah, blah, blah. In his latest video, Father Chicada looks as if he's advanced in age, completely worn down and sleep-deprived, like one on the verge of a meltdown. What we are witnessing is the classic case of the bully on the playground finally getting what he has coming to him now that his targets are fighting back. Unquote. <laughs> well, hey, no bullying there, right? And then they go on to lament that they've been attacked personally. Just bizarre bizarre. Then, oh yeah, here at Novos Ordo Watch, we've been accused of hiding behind a pseudonym. 
the pseudonym Gregorius, which is a pen name used by the writer of the essay The Chair is Still Empty, which was a lengthy refutation of two of John Salza's essays from years ago. Salza claims to know the motives behind the use of a pseudonym, by the way, and he implies it is a horrible thing to do. You know, like, like that never happened in church history. Someone using a pseudonym. Nah, that never happened. Like Maurice Panay, anyone? Maurice Panay wrote the book, The Plot Against the Church. That's uh, the book uh, that was given to every council father at Vatican II. Unfortunately, to no avail, but that's another matter. That name, Maurice Panay, was a pseudonym. Then we had, uh, for example, the Ottaviani intervention, right, uh, that was given to Paul VI against uh, the Novus Ordo Misse, the new, the, well, the new mass. Not that it's an actual mass, but, you know. Um, the Ottaviani intervention, even though it bears the name of Cardinal Ottaviani, was not actually written by him, uh, but I, I believe it was Father Gerard de Laurier, the uh, Dominican, well, in any, any case, it says a group of Roman theologians, and uh, they're unidentified, okay? So there, too, we have some uh, hidden identities, all right? And then, uh, of course, in the conservative Novus Ordo and in the semi-traditionalist circles, uh, we also see pseudonyms. For example, Father X is sometimes used, or Don Pio Pace, right? Or At Faro, or New Catholic. And they all write uh, and, and post on occasion for the Rorate Celi website. So are, are Salza and Cisco going to blast these people too for the evil, evil practice of using a pseudonym? Then, and this is uh, actually from their book now, not from their website, the uncalled for and I would say at least to an extent shameful accusation regarding those who quote unquote make a living offset of accountism. Let me quote to you what they wrote. Sal Francisco, pages 678 to 679, quote, those who are particularly hardened in their position are the Sedevacantist apologists who have publicly sold out for the position and would lose face before their followers and benefactors if they converted. This is especially the case for those who make a living by promoting Sedevacantism, such as the Diamond Brothers, as well as Father Cicada and Bishop Dolan, not to mention all the clergy of the SSPV and CMRI and similar groups. This is yet another evil fruit of the Sedevacantist tree. Unquote. Ah. There is the evil fruit. Sedevacantist clergy, you see, make a living off being Sedevacantists. So they are therefore hardened in their position and are afraid to lose face. You know, now that Saul and Cisco have published their theological masterpiece. So yeah, how dare they be Sedevacantist priests and not convert now? Clearly, it's the fear of looking foolish and, of course, the money. See, that's what happens when you become a Sedevacanist priest and get your income from parishioners, right? 
I mean, this is coming from two people whose book is being published and promoted by the largest group of non-Sedevacantist traditionalist clerics in the world, the Society of St. Pius X. And I'm using the term traditionalist loosely. The argument is so gratuitous, unjustified, and if it were valid, it could be made against the SSPX just as well. So what kind of argument is this? See, this is what bothers me about this. It's a blanket accusation made against all Sedevacantist priests for no other reason than that they're Sedevacantist priests. See, it's not like they're saying there's this one or these few particular clerics who, because of this or that piece of concrete evidence, can credibly be suspected of having an ulterior motive. No. The accusation is against all Sedevacantist priests for the simple reason that they're Sedevacantist priests. This is shameful. Very, very disgraceful. And by the way, are Salza and Cisco not aware that the priests, sisters, and brothers of the CMRI, the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, have a vow of poverty? Hello? Please hang up and try again. You know, if it's all about making a living, why did Father Michael Oswald leave his Novos Ordo priesthood where he could have had a comfortable retirement and a no-stress environment? Why did he abandon that and decide to join the uncertain and difficult world of Sedevacantism? Talk about looking foolish. How do you think Father Oswald looked before his Novus Ordo bishop and the other diocesan clerics when he told them why he was leaving? Mr. Salza, Mr. Sisko, we said of our are used to looking foolish. It happens to us all the time because our position isn't politically correct. Oh, and what about Father Bernard Utley, OSB? He left his Benedictine monastery, which was uh, being sold to the Novus Ordo sect, and he's now on his own. Surely that was also just for ulterior motives, right? What Salza and Cisco are doing here is quite simply below the belt. The rhetoric is so overblown, so excessive, that anyone who has endorsed this book in public should be embarrassed to the bone. But what's most bothersome is that the rhetoric and the accusations are often gratuitous. They're simply not grounded in reality at all. Now, let me say a few more words about rhetoric. At Novos Ordo Watch, if you're a frequent visitor, you know we often use pretty strong rhetoric most of the time. It's not rhetoric per se that's the problem. It's a question of using rhetoric that is in proper proportion and backed up by your case. But don't just throw unjustified stuff out there and insult people for the sake of insulting people. And that is what Salza and Cisco seem to be doing. Now, going back to their website, Salza and Cisco like to use catch-22 type arguments, meaning that um, no matter how you respond, they will always interpret it as a sign that you're signaling defeat. 
So for example, if you try to preempt them with something or if you act quickly on something that they put out, then it's because, oh, you're scrambling, you're panicking, whatever. <laughs> Salza even said that if we say we're not panicking, that's probably a sign that we're panicking. Yeah. On the other hand, if you say that you're going to take your time, that you won't respond right away, or that you won't respond to every petty little accusation that they make, then boom, you have no answer. You can't respond. Yeah, right. So they finally published the results of 10 years of research, and if we don't have an answer within 10 days of them publishing it, well, then that must mean we've conceded defeat, right? I mean, it's just very unreasonable, uncalled for, gratuitous, stupid, arrogant, unprofessional stuff. And I'm still not entirely decided yet on whether to uh, even respond to all the petty little side things that are accusing us of left and right. Because it's very time-consuming, and I don't know. I have the feeling that most people who are interested in this issue... Sedevacantism uh, versus recognize and resist. Most people who are really interested in this and that are on the fence about it and really searching for answers, they're not going to care about that. They care about the theology, the big picture, okay? Not about silly stuff like uh, when we said that uh, the articles on their website were just excerpts from their book and uh, they responded, no, that's not true. They were all written from scratch. That's a rash judgment and a lie, which, okay, fine, was a rash conclusion drawn from our end, but it's still not rash judgment in the moral sense uh, because we weren't accusing them of a fault, It's not wrong to publish excerpts from your book as separate articles on your website. So the question is, are people really interested in following such detailed little skirmishes or not? My guess is no, they're not. Because because this is ultimately not important. But maybe you'd like to uh, let us know what you think about that. If, if you have an opinion one way or another, um, feel free to go ahead and email us, tratcast at novusordowatch.org, tratcast at novusordowatch.org, and tell us what you think. Should we, should we spend time to, uh, to focus on that, to respond to all those little things, and especially those things that are just ultimately of no real relevance to the issues? Oh, and Saul's complained uh, about some of the spoofed images and memes that we use on Novos Ordo Watch at times. Like, um, for example, uh, for our post entitled Comedy Hour with John Salza, we uh, showed his face with a red clown nose photoshopped onto it. Yeah, he didn't like that. But Spoofed images like that are really nothing other than internet substitutes for cartoons, which are expensive to produce. You know, newspapers and magazines have long used cartoons to drive home uh, important points visually, right? Because you you know how it is. A picture says more than a thousand words. And in general, 
all of our memes and images like that are all grounded in reality. They are not gratuitous, at least not typically. I mean, they're not supposed to be. They convey an important truth, and uh, they do so in a visual in a visual manner. And so when in a recent post we put up a spoofed image showing John Salza holding a gigantic gavel, that is a visual depiction of his de facto position. Namely, that he gets to overrule what supposed popes and magisterial authorities have decreed and determined. For example, the canonization of saints in the Vatican II Church. Right? The, the pope says uh, John Paul II is a saint, and John Salza says, no, he isn't. Okay, So that's an example where we have no problem using an image like showing John Salza with a gavel in his hand because that is the reality of the situation. But apparently he's Mr. Sensitive. I don't know. Anyway, as far as our response to the book, True or False Pope, for right now, we're going to issue occasional refutations of various major arguments. Although I want to be clear, this is all just warm-up stuff uh, that you're seeing right now from our end, okay? The real refutation will be comprehensive, and it will uh, come much later. And we're going to make it so devastating that they will never recover from it. So let them party right now. They will see that their declaration of victory was mighty premature, and their pompous attitude about it now will come back to haunt them later. Well, that's just how things work in the real world. You know, I mean, if you're acting like your book is second only to the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, I mean, you're asking for it. You're asking to be put to shame. So that was a really stupid move on their part, to be so excessively smug and self-confident about it. If their case is so good, they should have just let that speak for itself, instead of making such over-the-top claims. So the more they taunt now, the more humiliating their defeat will be later. Tradcast. Okay, I really want uh, to move on, but uh, we can't just yet, because unfortunately... Gratuitous personal attacks, extreme pettiness, and overconfident claims aren't the only problem with Saul Zancisco. Sometimes it's also very misleading half-truths. And as you know, half-truths are more dangerous than flat-out lies. And I want to mention that because it's important. Because we're talking about dishonesty, and that has no place in such a serious discussion about theology. So even if you're not quite interested in hearing about these squabbles, please bear with me and listen to just this one particular case, and then we'll move on, okay? For example, in one of his articles, Salza accuses our own Gregorius of having no shame in, quote, calling his opponent moron, idiotic, hilarious, ludicrous, dumber, and asinine, unquote. And he points out that these words were used all in a single piece against him, Salza, on Sedevacantism. And uh, the, the piece that he's referring to is the chair is still empty, which we uh, mentioned earlier. Well, okay. Let's take a look at that. 
That's six less than flattering words that Gregorius allegedly used to label his opponent, right? That's what John Salza says. Is that so? And all that in a single piece? Well, one thing Salza didn't tell you is that that single piece, if you print it out, is between 63 and 74 pages long. Okay, depending on how you print it. So that's a pretty long piece. So if each of these less than flattering words appeared once, and they almost all do appear only once, that would make it less than one objectionable word every 10 pages. Okay, just to put things in perspective. Okay, but regardless, that's still not nice if Gregorius used all these labels to refer to Mr. Salza. So, Let's examine that claim for a second. First, the word moron. Did Gregorius, and therefore Novus Ordo Watch, call Mr. Salza a moron, as he claims? Here's the quote from the article where the word appears, and this is the only instance of the word. Listen closely. This is Gregorius speaking now. Quote, What is going on here? Is John Salza the biggest moron to ever have put pen to paper, or is he a malicious shyster who seeks to deceive his readership? Honestly, neither of these two scenarios is very plausible. Obviously, Mr. Salza is an extremely intelligent man. At the same time, he must have known that if he puts a fake citation in his article, sooner or later someone will discover it, especially in our days of the internet, where a wealth of information is available to most people within seconds. Unquote. That is what Gregorius wrote. It's the exact opposite of what Salza claimed. Not only did Gregorius not call Salza a moron, he specifically said that he is the very opposite of a moron, namely, an extremely intelligent man. Then the word idiotic. It appears twice in the 63-page essay, and in both cases refers not to Mr. Salza, but in one case to an assertion he was making, and in the other case, to an analogy made to show the silliness of something Salza said. And you know why Gregorius called this assertion and this analogy idiotic? Because it was. It was simply idiotic in both cases. Now, look, not everyone who says something idiotic is therefore an idiot. I've said idiotic things before in my life. Who hasn't? And what Salza said in those two cases was idiotic. I'm sorry, but he's not beyond criticism. Next, the word hilarious. That word appears once in the essay in this sentence. Quote, This error on Salza's part is not only hilariously embarrassing, but also downright bizarre. Unquote. Apparently, this is too much to take for John Salza. He's offended, okay? You're not allowed to call an error of his hilariously embarrassing, even when it's hilariously embarrassing. Okay. Next, the word ludicrous. Again, not referring to the person of Mr. Salza, but to an assertion he made. 
you can probably already guess why Gregorius called the assertion ludicrous. That's right, because it was ludicrous. And that was the only time that word was used in the essay. Then the word dumber. That appears only once as well in this sentence. Quote, Sorry to be blunt, but at some point one simply has to ask, how much dumber can it get? Unquote. And that, too, was in reference to an argument Salza was making, and that argument in particular was that we can't really know what the Vatican II popes actually believed because they could have just been lying to us about that. I'm sorry, but that is a dumb argument, okay? That doesn't mean Mr. Salza is dumb, it just means he made a dumb argument, and that he sure did. And lastly, almost done, lastly, the word asinine. Again, this word too only made a single appearance in the 63 to 74 page essay. The sentence in which it appears is the following. Quote, Needless to say, Salza once again provides no source whatsoever to back up this absurd and, pardon the term, outright asinine assertion. Unquote. So here, too, the adjective refers to the assertion made, not to Mr. Salza. And yet, Salza claims that Gregorius, quote, has no shame in calling his opponent moron, idiotic, hilarious, ludicrous, dumber, asinine, unquote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you've just seen, this accusation against Gregorius is simply not true. All right, time to move on. Let's finally move beyond the petty, silly, personal stuff and look at some theology. Oh, and you know what? We haven't taken a break yet. Why don't we take a break? I think it's time. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Tradcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming? One that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast. Here we are, back again, with the uh, second installment of our episode number 12, Tratcast, the 
traditional Catholic podcast on the internet. Visit us at tratcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. The handle is tratcastnow. That's tratcastnow. Tradcast is produced by Novus Ordo Watch at novusordowatch.org. All right, let's go back now to John Salza and Robert Sisko. When you open their book, True or False Pope, you begin with page Roman numeral one, and that is the foreword of Bishop Bernard Follet, Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X. Now, you cannot even get through the first paragraph of the first page in this book without breaking into hearty laughter. Bishop Follet says the following, quote, When we reflect on the crisis of faith in the Catholic Church, our heart cannot but ache for its countless victims, both lay and clerical. The victims who most readily come to mind are those of the left. Through unwitting obedience to recent popes, these now profess and practice a faith unrecognizable to our forefathers. Unquote. Think about this. By obedience to the Pope, you are led to embrace a false religion? A different faith? Does Bishop Fillet have any idea what he's saying here? Obedience, submission to the Pope, adherence to the Holy See, is precisely what guarantees your orthodoxy. At least that's what Catholics believe. It guarantees that you will never stray from the true faith, that you will always be nourished with true doctrine and never fall prey to error or heresy. That's the whole point of the Holy See. In fact, submission to the Pope is at all times the remedy against all danger of heresy or schism. Listen to the words of Pope Pius XI from his encyclical Casti Canubii. Quote, In order that no falsification or corruption of the divine law, but a true, genuine knowledge of it, may enlighten the minds of men and guide their conduct, it is necessary that a filial and humble obedience towards the church should be combined with devotedness to God and the desire of submitting to Him. God has constituted the church, the guardian, and the teacher of the whole of the truth concerning religion and moral conduct. To her, therefore, should the faithful show obedience and subject their minds and hearts so as to be kept unharmed and free from error and moral corruption, and so that they shall not deprive themselves of that assistance given by God with such liberal bounty, they ought to show this due obedience not only when the church defines something with solemn judgment, but also in proper proportion when, by the constitutions and decrees of the Holy See, opinions are prescribed and condemned as dangerous or distorted. 
Wherefore, let the faithful also be on their guard against the overrated independence of private judgment and that false autonomy of human reason. For it is quite foreign to everyone bearing the name of a Christian to trust his own mental powers with such pride as to agree only with those things which he can examine from their inner nature, and to imagine that the church sent by God to teach and guide all nations is not conversant with present affairs and circumstances, or even that they must obey only in those matters which she has decreed by solemn definition, as though her other decisions might be presumed to be false or putting forward insufficient motive for truth and honesty. Quite the contrary, a characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals by the Holy Church of God through its supreme pastor, the Roman pontiff, who is himself guided by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Unquote. Now that was Pope Pius XI. Here now comes Pope Leo Twelfth, encyclical Ubi Primum. Quote, but if one wishes to search out the true source of all the evils which we have already lamented, as well as those which we pass over for the sake of brevity, he will surely find that from the start it has ever been a dogged contempt for the Church's authority. The Church, as St. Leo the Great teaches, in well-ordered love, accepts Peter in the See of Peter, and sees and honors Peter in the person of his successor, the Roman Pontiff. Peter still maintains the concern of all pastors in guarding their flocks, and his high rank does not fail even in an unworthy heir. In Peter, then, as is aptly remarked by the same holy doctor, the courage of all is strengthened and the help of divine grace is so ordered that the constancy conferred on Peter through Christ is conferred on the apostles through Peter. It is clear that contempt of the church's authority is opposed to the command of Christ and consequently opposes the apostles and their successors, the church's ministers, who speak as their representatives. He who hears you, hears me, and he who despises you despises me. And the church is the pillar and firmament of truth, as the apostle teaches. In reference to these words, St. Augustine says, Whoever is without the church will not be reckoned among the sons, and whoever does not want to have the church as mother will not have God as father. Therefore, venerable brothers, Keep all these words in mind and often reflect on them. Teach your people great reverence for the church's authority, which has been directly established by God. Unquote. That was Pope Leo XII. And now, Pope Pius IX, from the encyclical Nocitis et Nobiscum. Quote, all who defend the faith should aim to implant deeply in your faithful people the virtues of piety, veneration, and respect for this supreme see of Peter. Let the faithful recall the fact that Peter, prince of apostles, is alive here and rules in his successors, and that his office does not fail even in an unworthy heir. 
Let them recall that Christ the Lord placed the impregnable foundation of his church on the sea of Peter and gave to Peter himself the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Christ then prayed that his faith would not fail and commanded Peter to strengthen his brothers in the faith. Consequently, the successor of Peter, the Roman pontiff, holds a primacy over the whole world and is the true vicar of Christ, head of the whole church and father and teacher of all Christians. Indeed, one simple way to keep men professing Catholic truth is to maintain their communion with and obedience to the Roman pontiff, for it is impossible for a man ever to reject any portion of the Catholic faith without abandoning the authority of the Roman church. And this authority, the unalterable teaching office of this faith, lives on. It was set up by the divine Redeemer, and consequently, the tradition from the apostles has always been preserved. So it has been a common characteristic both of the ancient heretics and of the more recent Protestants, whose disunity in all their other tenets is so great, to attack the authority of the apostolic see. But never at any time were they able by any artifice or exertion to make this see tolerate even a single one of their errors. Unquote. Thus far, Pope Pius IX. And just one more, uh, this time, Pope Leo XIII from an allocution to cardinals given on March 20th, 1900. Quote, the Church has received from on high a promise which guarantees her against every human weakness. What does it matter that the helm of the symbolic bark has been entrusted to feeble hands when the divine pilot stands on the bridge where, though invisible, he is watching and ruling? Blessed be the strength of his arm and the multitude of his mercies. Unquote. So, which is it going to be, folks? The Popes or Bishop Fillet? The Popes or John Salza and Robert Sisko? See, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to know whether the Vatican II papal claimants were valid popes or not. This is why you cannot say that it doesn't matter if Francis is pope or not. Look at it this way. If we said Evacantus so wrong, then we're simply wrong about whether certain individual people who claim to be pope actually were pope or not. That's it. That's all we'd be wrong about. But if the SSPX and their followers are wrong, then they're wrong not just about individual papal claimants, but about the papacy. Because as you can see here from the quotes we looked at, Sedevacantism leaves Catholic doctrine on the papacy untouched. It's the recognize and resist people, like the SSPX, who twist things around going so far even as Bishop Fillet to say that obedience to true popes leads you away from the true faith and into heresy or apostasy. Or have you ever heard these quotes we just gave you from the SSPX? No, didn't think so. All right, what else? Oh yeah, here, uh, a quick, interesting little thing. Kind of funny, actually. Uh, in their preface to the book, 
true or false pope. Robert Sisko and John Salza apparently can't quite decide whether Sedevacanus are part of their church or not. On page 5, they say this, quote, The Sedevacanus position is held by only an extreme minority of people, less than 0.00% of the church, unquote. And yet, on the very next page, on page 6, they say that Francis's erroneous and heretical statements have scandalized Catholics and led them, quote, out of the church and into one of the Sedevacantist sects, unquote. So, which is it? Are Sedevacantists outside of the church, or are they part of the church? Now, look, I know very well that, uh, you know, this isn't an argument for anything. It's, it's obviously uh, just an inconsistency. But I thought it was a fun one, one that deserved at least an honorable mention. Well, you know, especially since they're treating their book as just one step below divine inspiration, you know. Anyway... Oh yeah, how about this? You know, one of the main arguments Salza and Sisko make in their book is that Sedevacantists engage in private judgment. That phrase appears in the book, gosh, what, maybe three dozen times? At least. And you know what? Nowhere, nowhere in the entire book do they define it. They don't define the term private judgment. They quote no church document or theological manual or anything that defines private judgment. Why not? Now don't say it stands to reason, because it doesn't, and especially not when your entire case hinges on that. But no, they provide no authoritative definition or even an unauthoritative one. Instead, they want the reader to assume that the meaning is clear. But is it? Could you give a definition of private judgment if you had to? In our show notes for this episode, episode 12 at tradcast.org, we're providing a link to a post that we published uh, a few months ago by John Daly. And this is actually an excerpt from his book. The book is entitled Michael Davies, An Evaluation. And this excerpt specifically addresses the question of a private judgment. And when you read it, you will see that, if anything, it is far from certain what is meant by private Judgment. The post itself is entitled Sedevacantism and Private Judgment. And uh, again, we have the link up for you. So, oh, by the way, since we're on the topic, how is it that Salza and Cisco can say that Sedevacantists are outside the church and schismatics? You see, back in November, uh, on November 4th, 2015, Francis, supposedly the vicar of Christ, right, said that all the baptized are members of the church. Yep, yep. It doesn't matter what you believe or do or anything, as long as you're baptized, that's it. 
You're a member of the Catholic Church, according to Francis. So how can Salza and Cisco say that Cerevacantes are not part of the church? Quite ironically, for not accepting Francis as the vicar of Christ. Now, of course, they're going to say, well, you know, what Francis said there is baloney and, you know, we're traditional Catholics and yada, yada. But, but look, even by their own reasoning, even according to their own position, how can they say that we're outside of the church considering that we haven't been declared to be guilty of heresy or schism or anything else by the Novus Ordo Church? How can they say we're outside of the church? Surely they're not making that determination based on their own, you know, private judgment. Oh, the circus. Well, let it be enough for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you found this podcast informative and fun, and uh, we'll have lots more to come in the very near future. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well as to our blog. You can do it at tradcast.org, and it is free of charge. And in our next episode, we'll go back to what we started in Tratcast episode 9, and that is dissecting the John Salza interview on the Tratcat Night program that aired this past October. Until next time, God bless you. Cast.